Hey there, and welcome to Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm Leah Leibowitz, and as you can hear, because I'm here all alone, this is no ordinary episode of our podcast. Why? Because this week, we mark Rosh Chodesh Elul, the beginning of the Hebrew month of Elul. It's my favorite time of the Jewish calendar, and I hope that we can make it your favorite time too. What is it? Here's a story for you. A few years back, I was turning 40, which, if you've lived life like I've lived life, catches you by surprise. So I decided to reward myself by doing something very true to my nature, something big and dumb and audacious, something I had absolutely no freaking business doing. I decided to run a marathon. Making the decision was the easy part. I registered online. I paid an exorbitant fee because it's New York. I picked a charity to run for because it's good for the soul. And I sent all my friends triumphant emails. Hey, mere mortals, I am about to run a marathon because I'm an amazing person who knows no bounds in body and soul alike. That high lasted exactly 10 hours. Then it was the next morning and I had to go do what you have to go do if you want to run a marathon, which is to say, I had to run. It was so much fun at first. A breezy three-mile jog here, a slightly demanding but still pleasant five-mile dash there, nothing I couldn't handle. And it was exciting, too, because I wasn't just working out. I was training for a marathon. And then it was week three, and week five, and week 11. The distances grew longer. The summer got hotter. The jogging path by the river, which was so beautiful the first couple of days, was now just plain boring. I wanted it all to end. I wanted the marathon to be over already so I could say that I ran it without having to spend hours every week sweating and panting. And then it hit me. The question, the only one that matters when you're training for a marathon. It's embarrassingly simple. Here it is. Why exactly are you running a marathon? Why are you subjecting yourself to this torture when the first person ever to accomplish it, the Greek messenger Philippides, collapsed and died immediately upon completing his 26.2-mile trek? First to come and go are the obvious answers. Because it's healthy, because it's a challenge, because you need to get in shape, because, 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 because. These all make sense if you squinted them just so, but they're not the real reason. The real reason you're running the marathon is deeper. The real reason that you're running the marathon is because you need to figure out who you are, what you're made of, what you believe, what you could take, what you'll put up with, what you want out of life. You don't train just to run the marathon. The marathon itself is training for something larger, for some soul-searching journey that, barring a major challenge, most of us never really commit to taking. Which brings me back to Alul. It's the Jewish month leading up to the high holidays, the ultimate spiritual marathon. And just like any other marathon, we can't come to the starting line untrained. Elul is here to prepare us, to make us reflect on who we are, on what we want, and how we ought to live. How? This is the amazing thing about Elul. 
Judaism, a religion that can tell you precisely what you have to do if your ox gores another ox or how many yards you may travel outside of your town on Shabbos. Judaism never says. When it comes to the most important and difficult of all tasks, soul-searching, Judaism is mysteriously and uncharacteristically silent. It gives you some clues, like slichot or special prayers of repentance that we say this time of year. But for the most part, you're on your own, bub. Who are you? What do you believe? That's for you to figure out. And no amount of ritual can make this process shorter or easier. So this Elul, we're here to help. The next four episodes you're going to hear over the next four weeks, taking us right up to Rosh Hashanah, will each focus on a different aspect of preparing for the High Holiday Marathon. Today, you'll join me as we figure out what exactly is Elul and get a few pointers from the experts on how we may start our spiritual training. You'll hear from Rabbi David Bashevkin, who will give us an Elul primer. Stephanie and I will talk to Rabbi Diana Fersco, whose new book is a deeply moving and absolutely necessary guide to a question a lot of us ask ourselves always, but particularly this time of year, which is namely, how precisely should we be thinking about and talking about anti-Semitism? And we'll also bring you a report from the field, a throwback to our dear friend Kylie Unell grappling with Elul by going on a journey of self-discovery and bringing us all along with her. Next week, Joshua will lead us on an all-musical episode, helping us raise our voices and open our hearts with song. Then, Stephanie will explore the absolutely crucial role things, beautiful Jewish things, play in our tradition and why a gorgeous object can transport us from the material world to the sublime. And finally, we will talk, could it be any different, about food and the ways in which the things we cook and eat help us set our minds and our souls on what matters most to us. Ready? Lace up your jogging shoes because here we go. Our first guests should be very familiar to you if you listen to our sister podcast, Take One. He's a rabbi, an author, a thinker, and a guide to all things Jewish and soulful. And he's here to tell us everything we need to know about Elul. Here he is, our friend and teacher and yours, Rabbi David Bashevkin. Rabbi David Bashevkin, hello, my friend. Leo, what an absolute pleasure. I'm so excited to be talking to you about one of my favorite topics, Elul. So usually we talk about Talmud, but I got to tell you, I am a complete Elul nut. When the month approaches, I find myself excited. I find myself ready. I want to do this cheshbon nefesh, beautiful Hebrew term, meaning literally arithmetic of the soul. I want to come prepared. I want to work out. I want to get to the high holidays feeling like I'm ready. But, you know, even though I've been thinking about it really, really intensely for years now, I don't feel like I have a good LO practice. And I know you're going to train me. You're going to make it better. Before we even get there, let's put it all on the table. 
explain Elul to those of us who are new to this amazing practice. So Elul is the Hebrew month that leads up to the high holidays. It feels like it's the beginning, but it's actually the close of the previous year leading up to Rosh Hashanah. And there's something very remarkable that happened really at the beginning of Elul, where Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, which is one of the Midrashim that we have, explains that Elul is the beginning of a very important journey, namely where Moses went up onto Mount Sinai, when Moshe went up to Sinai in order to receive the second set of luchos, the second set of tablets. If you remember, there's a remarkable story that's told in the 32nd chapter of Exodus, where Moses breaks the first set of tablets. We didn't know it was the first set. We thought it'd be the final set because he sees the Jewish people serving the golden calf. And thank God the relationship was not over then. Moshe prayed and asked for a reconciliation, and God invited him to come back up onto the mountain to find a new set of luchos, to receive a new set of the Torah to bring down to the Jewish people. That journey began on the first day of Elul. And in a way, I look at my own life as kind of climbing up Mount Sinai, reflecting back on the last year, and all of us have some broken set of tablets in our lives, whether it's broken promises, whether it's unfulfilled values, it's not living up to the people that we want to be. We all have these shards in our life, and we move up and we ask God, bring me back up to the top of the mountain, give me a second set. And that journey begins in the beginning of Elul. That is amazing. And now begins the hard part. Because look, we have really, really clearly prescribed practices for Rosh Hashanah. We know exactly what to say. We know what to wear. We have shofars. It's great. Yom Kippur, forget about it. The fasting, the praying, the kol nidre, the liturgy, the, you know, Hashem, Hua Elohim, and the Elah at the end. It's so well scripted. It's great. And yet, to prepare for it, we have a month in which we have some practices, but there's no real instruction. There's no real guidebook in a religion that is otherwise really prescriptive on exactly what to do and what not to do, telling you how to go ahead and search your soul for what's broken and what's working. How do you explain that? It's so interesting because Elul actually represents a different stage in the process of teshuva. When we talk about repentance in the Talmud, there are really two parts of repentance that we oftentimes discuss. There's a very formal process that we go through beginning on Rosh Hashanah leading up to Yom Kippur, which is very formalized. We ask people for forgiveness. We make amends to people. We embedder ourselves in very formal ways. But there is a first part of teshuva that I actually find even more moving, and the language that the Talmud uses for this form of tshuva is hirhure tshuva the thoughts of doing tshuva. It's those pangs of aspirations. Sometimes it's maybe pulling at our heart with feelings of guilt. I can be better. I want to be better, but I don't know exactly how. And that, instead of just being this ephemeral idea where everybody has felt periods in their own life where their own thoughts start to drift and say, I could be better, I could do better, 
We actually created a month, which is Elul, where we actually focus on Hirhure Tshuva. Those thoughts of Teshuva, those thoughts of being better, those thoughts of improvement that deliberately are not given formal rituals. They're not given formal rituals because we want it to simmer. We want our mind to wander in unprescripted ways and try to almost imagine the imagination of Teshuvah, the creativity of Teshuvah. That's what Elul is all about. Sitting, reflecting on your own life, on your own interiority and what you're going through and saying, there's got to be a way where this can be better. There's got to be a way where this can be more. And to help us do it, there is slichas, right? The special kind of prayer that we say frequently. What are those for the uninitiated? So slichos are extraordinarily remarkable. They're early morning prayer. And slichos are actually petitions to God where we, so to speak, reflect on those pangs, those imaginative teshuva, where we kind of ask all of the celestial hosts of the universe, bring me closer to God, bring me closer to divinity in my life. They're always done either very, very late at night or very, very early in the morning before your day gets started. Because what repentance is all about is not just figuring out how do I get closer to the bullseye, but it's the question, the teshuva of the high holidays is unique because we ask, what should the bullseye be? We're not just asking, how does my life better fit my values? But we ask a more foundational question, what should my values be? And the way to ask that question is when it's not so busy, you're not at work, you're not in the cubicle, you're not answering emails, you're not taking care of your family, but it's very quiet outside. It's late at night, it's super early in the morning. And you ask yourself, not how do I get closer to my values, but what should my values be? What should I be reaching towards? That's the ultimate form of tshuva that I think is embodied by this time of year. So I love it very much. And I try to ask myself, this question for a month, at least a month every year. Let me tell you a little bit about what I do. I read a book every year. It's called This Is Real and You're Completely Unprepared, which is a great Absolutely. book by the, the late, great Rabbi Lou about this process and how to reflect. I try to increase in mitzvot. I try to commit to at least one other practice, one more righteous deed that I didn't observe that strictly. or didn't observe at all and sort of try to add on, not just for the month, but really pledge for the year. I meditate every day as is, but try to really kind of own in on meditation. So I come really after having a lot of time to prepare. We'll hear a bit later in the episode, our friend Kylie Unell doing this in, in Central Park beautifully. I really try to think, read, reflect, and do. What should I be doing better? So I, far be it from me. We know each other too long that I'm not going to tell you how to improve or a specific oh, path. Oh, please no. do. I need it. I never would. But I will tell you a thought that I always dwell upon in Elul, which kind of gives me a practice to enter the high holidays, which may be deeply satisfying or deeply unsatisfying, but it's actually a description of, of kind of my own thought process, particularly in Elul. There is a very strange custom that we don't find regarding any other month in the Hebrew calendar. And that is for the month of Elul, which is spelled with the Hebrew letters Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, which spells out Elul. For some reason, it's the only month that we do this for. All of the different works, rabbinic works, they always try to find meaningful acronyms 
for what those Hebrew letters that spell out the word Elul actually represent. Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed. And they point to different allusions for what this month represents, the most famous of which is probably that Elul is an acronym for the Hebrew words that can be found in Shir Hashirim in the sixth chapter in the third verse, Ani Lidodi Vidodi Li. I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. And there are other allusions that people find that are also extraordinarily beautiful. I'll tell you a few. One is es levavcha vi es levavav, to your heart and to the hearts of others in the 30th chapter, the sixth verse of the book of Devarim. Another beautiful acronym that is found in Elul is actually found in Purim in Megillus Esther, where Aleph Lamed Vav Lamed spells out the Hebrew words Ish Lereehu Vimatanos Leevyonim, a person to his friend and gifts to the poor. There is a common denominator in all of these, which are probably the most famous acronyms, and that is our relationship to the people who we treasure and are most beloved to us, our friends, our colleagues, our children, our parents. When I think about Teshuva, I think about reconciliation and healing the relationships that are actually most dear to me. A lot of people, when it comes to reconciliation, when it comes to asking forgiveness, they think about their arch nemesis, the person in the office who, you know, they they, they always hate, the, right. the friend who they got into a fight with from five years ago or 10 years ago and they lost touch with. They think, oh, maybe this year I'll reach out to them. And that's beautiful. I would never stop somebody from doing that. But I think the real reconciliation is the people who are closest to us. Did you ask your spouse for forgiveness? Did you ask your children for forgiveness? Did you ask your parents for forgiveness? Did you ask your closest friends for forgiveness? The Adnila Dodi Vidodi Lee, which is our relationship with God. How do you how do you clean out that pipeline? Ask your Dodi, ask your beloved for forgiveness. How do you create Teshuva in your life? Go and seek forgiveness. Heal the relationships that are closest to you. A person to his friends, to those close to him in his community, and gifts to the poor. I think that in the acronyms, we almost find a roadmap for where we should be placing our emphasis. Rabbi David Beshevkin, this is amazing. And before I let you go, I have just one quick fire question. Suppose someone needs a sort of TLDR, too long, didn't read version of this interview. Suppose someone says, look, I'm a busy person. I just want one thing, one thing to read, one thing to do, one little hack, if you will, one simple hack, as the internet likes to say, to get LO started on the right foot. What would be your prescription? You're setting me up and you're going to kill me for doing this. But but before <laughs> you're killing me. Do here. I hear Rabbi Tzado coming along? No, 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 no. You're, you're, I, I'm going to say I'm going to say one other acronym and then I'm going to give a recommendation that you're more than welcome to cut out. It's a little self-serving and you could absolutely cut my head off and never invite me on again. There's one acronym for Elul that really, really moves me. And it's the acronym. Again, Elul is Aleph Lamed Vav Lamed. There's one acronym that has always moved me, and that is Aron Luchos Veshivrei Luchos, that the Ark had this set of whole tablets and also the broken tablets. Aron Luchos Veshivrei Luchos, that we have the whole tablets and the shards of the broken tablets all together in the same Ark that lived in the Holy of Holies is an acronym for Elul itself. 
And I believe that in our life, we have a lot of failures. We have a lot of shards that we're not sure what to do with. Now, let me ask you a question. Let me interrupt and ask you a question. Is there an amazing book that a very wise and wonderful Jew wrote about sin and failure in the Jewish tradition that everyone should read right away? So you're killing me, but that's kind of where I was getting to. <laughs> I, I did write a book about this. I would understand uh, if me recommending my own book is a total deal breaker in this. But if you'll amuse me for a moment, yes, that's where I was going. I, I did write a book called Synagogue, but spelled S-I-N on sin and failure in Jewish thought. And that book is about how to take your shivrei luchos, those broken shards in your own life, and find a place for them in the Ark of the Covenant that represents the totality of our lived experiences and narratives. Don't discard your failures. Don't discard your difficulties. But take those shards, take those broken pieces, and find a place for them in the Aron. I will endorse the book as one of the most meaningful and moving meditations on life, Jewish life, failure, success, and value that I think I've ever read in my life. David Bashevkin, thank you so much for being our guest. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Our next guest is Rabbi Diana Fersco, the senior rabbi at the Village Temple in Manhattan. And watching anti-Semitism on the rise all across America, Rabbi Fersco figured out that it was really hard for her and a lot of her congregants to really think and also talk about anti-Semitism. So she wrote a book about it called We Need to Talk About Anti-Semitism. And Stephanie and I sat down to talk to her about the difficult conversation that we absolutely must be having. Have a listen. Rabbi Fresco, welcome to the show. Honored to be here. So excited. So look, this is our Elul episode. And the whole point around this episode, and I think the whole point around Elul, is that it's the month out of the year in which you ask yourself, who am I? What do I believe? How do I have conversations with myself and with others that are hard, that are about things that really weigh on me, that really stress me out all these other months of the year and I don't know how to approach? And I think for many of our listeners, one of these things, especially in recent years, is 
anti-Semitism. And it just so happens that you wrote a book, the title of which is... We Need to Talk About Anti-Semitism. Available now? Soon? August 29th. It's a title that does not need a subtitle. (laughs) There's no, like, three things. It's literally, we need to talk about anti-Semitism. Well, if I'm being honest, what I originally wanted to call it was Wake Up and Shake Off the Dust, (laughs) which, as you know, is a quote from liturgy, which also is a quote from Tanakh. Mm -hmm. I love that you assumed that you looked at me and said, as you know, I did not know that. (laughs) Listeners, I did not know that. Liel, did you know that? I didn't know that. Okay, okay. (laughs) So, we sing it every week at um, Lachado and I, I just have always loved that teaching. And like, that's what I want to say to the Jews. Shake Wake off the up. dust. Shake off the dust. Like, hello, open your eyes. But it is not really a searchable title. So yeah, my publisher had better ideas. It's not great. So to get us started, how do you explain anti-Semitism and how have you come to conceptualize it and frame it? Okay, so my most asked question is this, and I, I would like, I don't know, maybe you can answer why this happens to me, but people like to ask me the most How is anti-Semitism similar or different from other forms of hate? I don't know why people are so interested in that question, particularly. But to answer your question, I would say I really like the Rabbi Jonathan Sachs definition of anti-Semitism, where he talks about how anti-Semitism is not allowing Jews to exist collectively in the ways that other people exist collectively. So for me, that addresses a very broad swath of the anti-Semitism we're seeing today, whether it happens in somebody's high school, that um, Jews are singled out in a certain way and not allowed to gather in the way that other groups are, or whether that happens with the state of Israel itself. And the state of Israel is held to very different standards as we exist as a collective there than other countries that exist as a collective. So that's how I understand anti-Semitism. How have we been talking about anti-Semitism wrong and how might we be talking about anti-Semitism better? And why should we really talk about anti-Semitism? Okay, well, a few things. First of all, when I pitched this book, we actually weren't talking about anti-Semitism. It was before the violence of May of 2021, Israel and it was before anti-Semitism was in the headlines. It was a thing. Um, it, right. It wasn't a thing for a lot of Jews, which sounds shocking, <laughs> but was very, very true. And something I talk about is how if you're around my age in that kind of like elder millennial phase, you grew up on a pretty amazing vacation from anti-Semitism. Right. Right. You sort of saw a movie about anti-Semitism. You rolled your eyes when your grandfather told you, you know, they don't like the Jews. Like, they, everyone loves the <laughs> Jews. Everyone on my college campus loves us. It's fine. Right. Yeah, you heard about a swastika here or there, or you sort of mouth the words like, he's Jewish, as if you would with, like, cancer or something else. <laughs> but um, mostly, you lived a really assimilated life in my world, in my, you know, liberal Jewish world. So at first, my thought was, we're really not talking about this at all. But I was talking about it as a congregational rabbi on the Bema. And that, my talking about it, but my community sort of hesitating, led to a real unfolding of different circumstances as I continued to talk about it through the years and saw the realities and the externalities of anti-Semitism change in real time. People hesitating because there's something, what, not cool, not liberal, not... I got pushback, not from everyone, but from sort of two mainstreams of thinking, both of which I 
understand. The first was, why are you spending time on anti-Semitism when you should be talking about other topics? Other topics, meaning things like misogyny or racism or climate change or things that were more present in the Mm -hmm. news at that time. I certainly agreed with them. Those had other moral urgencies to those topics. And I did, in fact, address them from the BEMA. But when I talked about anti-Semitism, nonetheless, <laughs> I got this critique of, like, there's a competition here and you're taking up space with, like— Couldn't we also do anti-Semitism? Right. <laughs> That's Well, and so I did. And basically, the more I talked about it, what happened is over time, people started really almost coming out to me and telling me their real life encounters with anti-Semitism. Some of them were just like grotesque and obvious, but a lot of the encounters were encounters that people weren't even sure they could label as anti-Semitic. It was sort of like hidden and under the surface. So my congregants sharing their encounters with me really like spurred me on because I was like a detective and they were sort of confirming like this, something bad is is coming. <laughs> like this is getting worse in people's lives. And there's a dearth of education about the history of anti-Semitism. There's a lack of language for how to describe the anti-Semitism that we're encountering as opposed to like the straight up anti-Semitism that most of us know about. And then in 2020, during the Black Lives Matter protests, my synagogue was hit with a baseball bat in our glass door. And the years of talking about anti-Semitism and then that happening made me incredibly frustrated. And I just wanted to vent my frustration in the most Jewish way possible and write a book about it. So (laughs) I want to locate this because you're not in rural America, right? Where these people are coming to you with these stories. You were in downtown Manhattan. She's in a village. (laughs) She's in a village, but it's the village, right? It doesn't even need any more descriptors. You're in Manhattan. You're in New York. You're in this place that we imagine as so far from this. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the smaller examples you were hearing where people were like, is that? Because I think I have been in conversations or things where I'm like, I don't think that was cool what you said, but was that anti-Semitism? Does it rise to the level of like a pogrom? Like I feel like Teasing out the like real subtleties here would be helpful. I love that that's the yardstick. Is it a pogrom? Because if not, we're cool. Seriously, though, you know, it's it's hard for us who haven't experienced this on a such a large scale. We go from zero to Cossack. Exactly. Well, I think your question is exactly on target because I actually think that is the measuring stick. There's this tendency in my mind. I call it anti-Semitic denial disorder, (laughs) ADD, (laughs) where in every conversation about anti-Semitism, there's a part where you either diminish or deny that it actually is anti-Semitism. So you can just go through a list of like what you've seen in pop culture like recently, you know, Kanye, not anti-Semitic, maybe it's mental health or Kyrie, not anti-Semitic, maybe it's lack of education or obviously politics. Oh, maybe it's not anti-Semitic. It's just anti-Zionism, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's always kind of like a loophole And part of what I'm trying to do in the book is like close that loophole and say to people, actually, the fact that your workplace won't grant the Jews and the Jews only an affinity group is a problem. That's not cool. And it doesn't need to be this grotesque or violent expression of anti-Semitism, God forbid. It can be something smaller or a comment that's off or maybe picks up on a classical anti-Semitic trope that makes you feel uncomfortable in a way. And that counts, that matters, that's real, and you should 
claim your Judaism and stand off against it. You know, Sarah Silverman was on the show last month and she said Jews are a minority that aren't treated like a minority. And I thought that was such a brilliant way of putting it so Mm -hmm. profound because in many ways we are taught to see ourselves as privileged, as whatever. And I think it is hard for a lot of us to say none of this is a competition. There are all sorts of bad things happening. And I think staking our ground as Jews and saying like, we need to talk about anti-Semitism. It is hard for us, right? And I think that it's really amazing that you're putting this book out there because you're sort of helping us put our hands up and say, excuse us, pay attention to what's happening here. Yes. So I heard her on the podcast and I completely, when she said that, I was like, yes, you know, that's very true. I think there's a lot hard about acknowledging and demanding to be recognized as a minority in our culture right now because Jews don't necessarily fall along the lines that we like to understand our culture through. So Jews can be of any class. Jews can be of any race, any gender. And because we're not falling into those binary slots, you know, rich, poor, black, white, et cetera, or religious, secular, like even that doesn't work for us. We're not well understood by the mainstream culture. But the question for me as a rabbi, and back to Elul, by the way, is more how do we understand ourselves? And that's what makes me crazy. And that's why I wake up every day in the morning and try and do what I'm trying to do, because it breaks my heart to see Jews not fully understanding themselves as part of the Jewish people and not fully knowing what that means. I want to talk about you. I see a big, beautiful Jewish star around your neck. Yes. You also have blonde hair. And I would say, as a story told in the book, (laughs) you don't look Jewish. Your experience, I think, in many ways, it's in the book, right, has been shaped by Mm -hmm. this idea of external appearance. What's it like being blonde is what I want to (laughs) know. Well, it's a great conversation starter, (laughs) I would say. First of all, yes, I wear a Jewish star and I always try and wear some Jewish jewelry because I'm on like a mission to be Jewish visible. And that's not because I'm blonde. That's because I'm fighting anti-Semitism. So I say, if you wear a kippah at shul, try wearing one at work. That's a good way to fight anti-Semitism. If you have a gorgeous kamsa that you love wearing, like you should wear that to your child's soccer game. You should let people know you're Jewish. Obviously, I'm not from the Orthodox world where this becomes very obvious by how you dress. So that's the first part of being I mean, for me, it's just, you know, walking around with my face. (laughs) There's really no other option. (laughs) But listen, lots of us are, are not born that way, fitting into any kind of stereotype. And that's becoming more and more true. Well... My whole life is an answer to that question. So I'll say this. As you know, I love fulfilling mitzvot. I love it, like with a fervor. And the Chabadniks on the street, I'm a Manhattan person, are always saying things to people. Are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? And they never ask me. And I'm so mad. So one time I'm like walking down the street, minding my business because, you know, that's what I do. And are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? And I just stare down like this young boy. He's probably like 14. And he looks at me and he goes, are you Jewish? And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to shake the lulav? And I said, yes. <laughs> and not only did I fulfill the mitzvah, I, you know, said the proper blessings. And he was like, how do you know so much? I said, because I'm Jewish and I love Judaism. And I was just like, it, it made my day. So that's what it's like to be blonde and Jewish. 
And blue-eyed. We forgot to mention that. Right. And blue-eyed. And from Connecticut. Blonde and Jewish coming soon to Netflix. (laughs) I want to focus on a specific chapter of your book, which is called We Need to Talk About Race. Mm -hmm. So could you explain a little bit about how whiteness and things like that play into the conversation around anti-Semitism, particularly in the context of race in America? The chapter I wanted to write the least was that chapter about race. And the chapter I needed to write the most was that chapter about race. Because in many ways, this book is like a love letter to my community, like the liberal Jewish world. And I think the race conversation is one that we're having in a very intense way. And I think it's one that people are really confused about. I think some of the newer understandings of whiteness and of racism have really impacted the Jewish world, mostly because Jews are extreme. The Jews I know (laughs) are extremely eager to be good people. And what does it mean to be a good person? And I think it's become... If only there was a set of instructions. <laughs> a book. See, given to us maybe, I don't know, by God. <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> if only, then we'd have to read it. That's I right. Know. And live by it. Like ev- imagine? every week. It'd be so hard. Um, so one thing I talk about is how I handled a conversation when someone approached me and said something along the lines of, I can't talk about anti-Semitism because I'm white and racism is so much worse. Um, that's not an uncommon belief-feeling sentiment. I think it's a growing belief. So I think it's our job, and what I do in the chapter for a long time, is spend a long time on the history of racializing Jews and the dangerous results that come of that. So whether it's framing us as white-threatening or as white-enforcing, there is a well-established anti-Semitic precedence around racializing the Jews that we need to be very aware of. So it's a complicated conversation and one that I predict will unfold in an intense and unfortunately divisive way over the next few years. The book is broken down into different sections. We Mm -hmm. need to talk about Israel. We need to talk about Christianity. We need to talk about race. And then the last bit is sort of different. Mm -hmm. There's sort of a coda almost in which you talk to grandchildren of Mm -hmm. Holocaust survivors. So why go there? Why end there? And what did you learn from that? Every chapter starts with a question that somebody actually asked me. And then I spend the chapter answering the question. And you, you may know or not how it is in congregational life. Congregants often ask you like the greatest question when you're on your way to the bathroom or like you have your coat on, you're on the way out the door or like in a text message. And you cannot possibly answer these deep and complicated questions in a short amount of time. So that's why I spend each chapter structured that way and answering. I have so many people in my community who struggle with how should we talk about the Holocaust, especially now that Holocaust survivors are largely gone. I think the time has come for the generation of grandchildren of Holocaust survivors to take over that conversation and lead the way. And so many of my friends are like, hidden. (laughs) They don't talk about the fact that they're third generation survivors and they don't talk about the shame that their grandparents encountered for surviving or the courage and the bravery that their grandparents exhibited in ways they could never fathom. And they don't talk in public about like how that legacy is affecting them every day, how it made their career choices what they are. I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) um, (laughs) Exactly. So for me, those are peers that I look to for leadership and inspiration 
about how do we understand this horrible tragedy that happened to us and how do we understand what it means now? And that's why I had to call my friends and put them all on record. So where do we begin? I mean, so here's this congregant hypothetical who grew up on what you so beautifully described as like a holiday, a vacation from anti-Semitism, who thought, hey, you know, I'm Jewish, I'm proud to be Jewish, but my liberal values probably represent who I am and what I care about best and never really thought that much about Judaism, probably don't practice, maybe don't know as much as I want to. And all of a sudden, it's kind of creeping up on me that there is a real problem and it's making me feel uncomfortable. And now I want to take some step and I want to talk about anti-Semitism. I agree with you that we need to talk about anti-Semitism, but I have no idea what to do now. What do I do now? Okay. Well, uh, I, I, after I buy your book. <laughs> I was going to say, I wrote a book yeah. to answer that exact question. But, do I need to read it or uh, do I just buy it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, the way I answer that question, I always hear um, Ahad Ha'am teaching, which is like learning, learning, learning. That is the key to survival. And I used to have that quotes above my desk for many years. Learn something. So if you really want to lean in, I, I don't know if my publisher would be happy with my recommending another book, but I really like the book Anti-Judaism. It's 700 pages long. It is a very difficult read, but it will. You're really selling it here, by the way. Right? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it is one of my all-time favorite books. So learning is an answer, okay? You can learn about anti-Semitism. But the other thing you could do is learn about Judaism. Because as I said, sort of the heart and the core of this is, do you know what it means to be a Jew? Because if you do, everything will stem from there. And I think in many ways, like we're all on that journey. I'm still learning what it means to be a Jew every single day. But because I'm engaged in that process of study, ritual, community, social justice, et cetera, all the things that make me like the Jewish person I am, I feel like I'm closer to being able to identify, argue against, fight against anti-Semitism than if I were distanced from all those things. Now, let me be uh, unkind to you. <laughs> Just because you're sitting across the table from me. So surprise, surprise. The rabbi is telling me to be more Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> is there a way around it? Or is what you're saying, hey, if you want to survive this, you're going to have to lean into some things that you thought were very far away? The reason I don't like that question is because there's a tension there. The tension is Judaism is not a religion only. It is more than that. It is something passed down from generation to generation. And even if you do nothing and your mother is Jewish, you are Jewish. So I want to honor that and make a big tent for everyone and say, if you're Jewish, you're in and you don't have to do it my way. But I clearly see a great deal of value in being a committed, involved, active Jew. And I want more people to be that way, <laughs> which is why I am on the BEMA doing what I do and not, you know, in an academic classroom, like studying about Judaism, which is also very interesting. I, I love everything about what you said. And here we are in the beginning of the holy month of Elul, uh, my favorite Jewish month of the year, a month of soul searching and preparation. Give us your tips to rock Elul. H how do we <laughs> prepare? What should we do? What I do, surprise, is try to do Teshuva, Tefillah, and Sadaka during this month because I think they're the unlock to spiritual readiness and preparation for the holidays. So Tefillah, like I'm praying all the time and I try and pray more and better with greater intention and clarity in this month. 
I try and do teshuva, although it's hard when you're a rabbi of a congregation because you make so many mistakes. <laughs> so it's hard to apologize for all of them, but I try. And then tzedakah, which is sort of the fun one, because you get to think like, okay, where will I really make the world more just? And how will I utilize all of my resources to try and do that? I want to go a little bit deeper into the first one because like Liel prays all the time. He always does it at airports, no matter where we are. He's like, it's always somehow, whatever our time or flight right, is, time it's pray. time to pray. It's mincha um, somewhere. <laughs> I love this idea. I love the idea that this is sort of, it's like the original version of like, well, like it's all this stuff, right? right. Mindfulness. Like, oh yeah, mindfulness. This is mindfulness. Stephanie, don't blow up my uh, high holiday sermon there. <laughs> Sorry. You heard it here first. Right. Um, but I don't know how to pray, to be perfectly honest with you. Do I need a book? Do I need to say something? Do I just like kneel at my bed? That feels well, super Christian. That, that, yeah. Yeah, like, how does someone who loves this idea of having more clarity, like what can I do? You can walk into a synagogue on a Friday night or a Saturday morning. You can look at the schedule in advance. You can sit in the back. Nothing bad will happen to you. <laughs> Nothing magical will probably happen to you. But someone might say Shabbat Shalom to you and you can just respond and say, Shabbat Shalom, or if you don't want to say that, you can say hi, and you can sit there quietly. That's the answer to the first step. I love that. And I realize I have been doing that because I've been going to Saturday services, kid services, with Lily and Cohen, and I'm like, this is a spiritual feeling there. Is there something I could do at home? Is this dependent on that house of worship? It's not dependent on the house of worship, but here I am being a congregational Mm -hmm. rabbi again. We will help you. (laughs) That's what we do. Why make it hard on yourself? I don't think Judaism is best learned as an individual. I think it's best learned in a community, say, of 10 people or more. (laughs) And I think there are systems and practices that have been put in place for many, many, many generations that we feel like now in our day, it's like, oh, let me find a new way. Let me DIY this. And that's nice. But also there's this other thing called a synagogue that also might help you. One thing that I hear very frequently from people who aren't accustomed to going to shul and all of a sudden start is, you know, it's kind of a letdown Mm -hmm. because you think of like a religious service and you expect to be moved. You expect to set something magical to happen to you. And you walk in and in many places, and you see a bunch of people and they're all kind of mumbling at their own pace seemingly and, and, and you don't really get what's going on. And I sort of try to explain that that's actually an unbelievably beautiful thing because each one of these people is trying Mm -hmm. to commune both with Hashem, but also with each other, but also with themselves. And they're all stumbling together. But that's kind of a really difficult concept to understand, right? Wouldn't have been easier if it was just a show. I love the scene you describe of walking in and not knowing what's going on because it teaches you something about community immediately which is it's not for you alone. It's for you, but it's not for you alone. So it's not a personal guided tour (laughs) through, you know, here's (laughs) what Judaism is and here's what Judaism can do for you. The onus is on you to say, how can I contribute to this community? But more than that, who am I, right? That's your Elu question. And what's my relationship with God? It's much bigger than any individual. Baruch Hashem. Rabbi Hannah Fersko, thank you so much for being our guest. My honor.
the month of Elul, we're commanded to take stock of our soul and prepare for the divine judgment that begins on Rosh Hashanah. But Jewish tradition, which has a lot to say about every single aspect of each and every other observance, is silent on Elul. How should we prepare? What does our soul require? Judaism doesn't say. Luckily, then, a couple years ago, we made a podcast to try and figure it all out. How to Fix a Soul in 30 Days follows Kylie Unell, a doctoral student in Jewish thought, a thinking Jew, and a perpetually wondering person, as she goes on a journey to try and fix, well, her soul. Along the way, Kylie tries out different methods of connecting with Hashem. She turns to Jewish thinkers for guidance, like Sarah Herwitz, the author of Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism, after finally choosing to look there. I think that Jewish prayer is attempting to cultivate certain mind states in us, right? It's attempting to cultivate gratitude. It's attempting to cultivate awe. It's attempting to cultivate humility. She reckons with the vulnerability needed to apologize to make atonement in the lead-up to Yom Kippur. Guys, welcome to the apology dinner. Are you here to apologize to us? Or? Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> because apologizing is really hard. Really that hard. is what I've learned. She tries out Hitbudadut, a form of unscripted prayer that takes her out into nature to speak to God directly. I don't know what to say. I don't feel like I'm talking to God. I feel like I'm talking to myself. Oh, there's a animal. What are you? Is that a gopher? Can't be a beaver, but it looks like a beaver. What? There's so many different kinds of animals. Honestly, I feel like I'm supposed to be talking like I've just done psychedelics or something. I never have. I have no idea what I would sound like if I did, but whoa, man, animals. Crazy. But it is, it is actually kind of crazy. Kylie's journey traverses nine episodes of thought, action, missteps, and transcendence. And you could listen to the whole thing. It's really worth your time. But I wanted to leave you with my favorite moment from the series. In what you're about to hear, Kylie tries to figure out how to approach prayer. Rabbi Dov Yona Korn, head of Chabad House Bowery, leads Kylie through a meditation that forces her to contemplate what it means to really let go of control and accept imperfection. It's about 10 minutes long, so sit back, relax, and let the wisdom wash over. So, we're going to pray, I guess. <laughs> what do we do? What do I do? I'm going to try to do something very simple. So first of all, I'm going to ask you to, to get some good posture. I'm going to ask you just do some just, just deep breathing in through the nose, out through the mouth. Very simple. It's good. It's good before a business meeting. It's good before an important conversation. It's certainly good before prayer to just focus yourself physically. Notice if there's places in your body where you feel tense. Just try to, try to breathe into those areas, just relaxing your body. Let's just give us about 15, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. Hear the wind, calming sounds. We're going to go through a very slow progression. You can keep your eyes closed. We can go through a very simple progression of ideas that Chassidus tells us help us ease into a conversation with Hashem. 
going to heightened awareness of Hashem's presence. So the first concept is going to be a little bit of meditation on Mamalei Kal Almin, which means the way that Hashem fills in the world. So it's thinking about a very imminent part of Hashem, the way Hashem is the energy behind the wind you're hearing, the kind of spirit of creation, just like a body would never move if there was no soul in it, God forbid it be a corpse. So creation has a soul and that soul is God's, God's imminent energy. It fills in the world, just like the body fills, the soul fills in the body. So either keep your eyes closed or if it helps to look around at nature to feel kind of the, the energy of creation. It's churning, the world's churn, the sun, the moon, the thunder, the lightning, the constellations, the planets, the seasons, the weather, the wind, the streams, animal life, human life, the movement of existence. acorns falling on the gazebo. And to feel that's, that presence we feel, that spirit, that is godliness, that is God. And even expanded a little more to just like even human activity. Think of Times Square, think of Wall Street, think of a stadium, think of the Olympics, think of just the movement of existence, the general movement of all existence, the pulse of existence. This is, this is the spirit of, of existence, this is God. Almost allowing yourself to feel like the, the entire um, imagery of creation. The, all the scenes you see, everything is part of this production that Hashem's putting on. And we'll slowly progress from this to a meditation of God's transcendence. The way that Hashem is, is that, that all of the energy I just mentioned is drop of a drop of a drop of a drop of a drop of the infinity of God. The way God transcends existence. The way that this world and all of its energy is, it, it's not even fair, but it's like, it's like the equivalent of one hair on the human body. And that's a joke because it's not even, that's, it's that, and then that whole human body is itself just a hair. And that whole, on a bigger body, and that whole human body is a, just a hair on another huge human body. Just to give, just to allow the mind to begin to grasp what it means that we're talking about the existifier of all existence. He's not even infinite. Infinity is also a creation of God's. And to meditate on that, that transcendence, that, 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 that transcends everything, this energy, this light, this oneness. We call it Sovev Kol Almin, the way that God transcends the worlds. And allow that meditation to help you think in bigger terms, to move away from the human experience, to move away from the corporeal experience of humanity. And then I want you to, to take one further step. So the, the first part is usually achieved through Pesuka de Zimra, the verse of praise. The second part is achieved through the blessings of the Shema, getting us to realize like the way the angels praise God, the way he's transcendent, he's, he's unattainable, he's unimaginable, he's everywhere and everything. Then we, we reach Shema. Shema is the oneness of Hashem. So realizing that that there's actually nothing outside of Hashem. That Hashem, there's no such thing as Hashem and Kylie. It's not possible. On an essence level, on a, the truest level, Ein Oid Milvado. There's nothing else besides Him. Can I like hug myself? Yes, <laughs> you should. You should. It's, all human pain comes from our inability to realize these truths. 
Hashem is everything. Hashem is the tree. Hashem is the lake. Hashem is Kylie. Hashem is Rabbi Korn. Hashem is everything. There's only one true existence. And these are all expressions of that, that, true, that true existence. Our sense of autonomy is essentially false. We're part of the creative process. We have a mitzvah to execute on the creative scheme where we do, we do have independence and free choice and all these beautiful things. But on its essence level, ain't oid movadai. Really, we don't exist. Only Hashem exists. And we are expressions of Hashem's existence. And on this last point, I really want you to take a second to really appreciate that you, with all of your failures, with all of your imperfections, with all of your brokenness, with all of your pain, you are an expression of Hashem's existence. Hashem is the painter of all creation. He's painting this picture of Himself in you. As Kylie. All the pain. All the fear, all the anxiety, all the self-hatred, all the self-loathing that we all experience for some strange reason. It's all Hashem. That's all the artists. You can't look at a painting and say, oh, how did Van Gogh do the It's an artist. And Hashem's the perfect artist of all creation. And this is how He's painted you. This is how He's painted Himself as you. And I'd like you to try to take this, this realization and think about it in other areas of your life where you're struggling. This situation is also Hashem. This that you can't that you can't figure out how to how to how to get healing or redemption or salvation in this area or that area. That's also God. A person struggling with money, a person struggling with parnasa, a person struggling to find their soulmate, a person struggling to have children, a person struggling, God forbid, with health, a person struggling with mental health, a person struggling with their Yiddishkeit, with their relationship with God. All of this is the is the is the painting of the artist. Ein Movada, and this is how he's painted. I want to invite you to try to release some of the, the drama that we, we, we ascribe to all these experiences because we forget this truth. Can I like scream? You can scream. <laughs> we ascribe so much, so much uh, attachment and uh, un, un, uh, misplaced ownership and misplaced control and misplaced identity to so many things that are truly just Hashem's choice. The king chooses, the king paints, the king expresses. And we want to ask the king to help us let him reign. <laughs> no, one, no one can imagine like what's happening here. We started in this beautiful, calm, like birds chirping, and within minutes, like an in, an in like, sequence with our prayer here, we're like in the middle of a hurricane. And the king is speaking without question. The king paints. And we have to ask him, let us let you reign, not R-E-I-G-N. But you can also reign. If you want to hear more of Kylie's journey, you could find How to Fix a Soul in 30 Days wherever you get your podcasts or go to tabletmag.com slash how to fix a soul.
Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Liel Leibowitz, with Stephanie Butnick and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Daron Ruskay, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Get your Unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. Write to us and share your Elul traditions by emailing us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week, wishing you a very meaningful Elul. Shalom, friends. Zoom is working. It might be on your end. It is not at all on our end.